Well, this morning we come back to our summertime consideration of the theme of covenants. And um, I, I have to confess that regardless of how many times I go through this in my own studies, how many times I've gone through this with others in formal instruction, uh, I never feel that we have really touched the, the heart of many of these um, biblical concerns. And I think it's because um, we've grown content to just allow... Uh, theological traditions to govern our understandings and thinking which you know at all points is not a bad idea I mean the great minds have come to work on these themes and you know we're in a real sense entering into to their labors uh, but sometimes when you just uh, have a, a set pattern of uh, you know, what people today would say sound words and again the only thing I consider sound words when Paul says hold fast a form of sound teaching he's talking about biblical teaching he's talking about the instruction of God's word uh, so often I run into people that say well if you don't hold fast the form of sound teaching from this council or that council or this creed or that creed and though I think the form of sound words that those councils and creeds have developed are, are not bad <laughs> I don't want to condemn them they're, they're very helpful uh, to conceptualize biblical teaching I mean, we have to say something about the Bible in words other than the Bible or just, we're just be quoting the Bible to understand what the Bible is saying requires different words so um, that's, uh, that just goes with the territory of, of having to teach um, what the scriptures teach but uh, this theme of covenant indeed it is a vast thing and it's something that is um, it really does require greater measures of exploration. But in past studies this summer, I've endeavored to give you my own assessment that, that covenants, are, it's not a creation concept, it's a, rest, it's a restoration concept. It, it meets us in redemption, it meets us in sin. And uh, in a real sense, when I speak of the restoration that the covenant brings, I'm thinking in terms of rest, restoration of creation. And you know that's where I that's where I live these days in creation, recreation, and all of that. But you know when you conceptualize the relationship that God had with Adam in the Garden of Eden, um, you could have Adam here in his relationship to God. I didn't do that right. Got to get an A in there. Um, the focus of God's relationship involved Eden, right? The man was made in the image and likeness of God, and he was, God planted a garden, placed him in it, and his responsibilities to um, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it began at Eden. And then through life in Eden, if man had not sinned and been exiled from Eden, the, you can conceive of the fact that generation after generation would be born in Eden and pretty soon have to move out. <laughs> there would have to be an extension of the garden as part of cultivating the earth and subduing it they would have moved out from the garden and pretty soon the world would have been populated with image bearers of God who would have dominion over the earth and, 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 and that was God's purpose that his sovereignty over the earth would be um, given to man his vice regent who reigns for him uh, fulfilling his purposes of uh, advancing his will in, in, with respect to creation to that original mandate but of course through sin that got ruined and man is exiled from Eden and um, then God comes into Abrahamic covenant and he comes with a promise and he comes with a promise again of so let's say you have God in his relationship to Abraham do a little triangle there again um, it has is its focus this land that you're walking through 
this land I promised to you is look look out of the east, west, north, and south, as far as your eye can see, from uh, the great river to the to the sea, to the you know the the, the deserts of the south, to uh, to the mountains of the north. This land is um, given to Abraham and his seed. So we have Canaan, we have the land of promise, and uh, of course that does not get fulfilled in Abraham's life. Abraham and his descendants don't actually dwell in Canaan for very long. They are living in tents, passing through, um, and uh, they go to. Abraham at one point goes down to Egypt. You don't read, you read the travels in Genesis. And then you see that Jacob had to flee to Paddan Aram. And then ultimately he and his descendants end up into Egypt. And God says that it's not in this generation that they're going to possess the land. Because the land is occupied by Canaanites. And until the iniquity of the Amorites become full, um, your descendants are going to be in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be strangers. As you've been a stranger in this land, they're going to be a stranger in another land, in a land that's not theirs. And then 400 years are going to pass, and then I will bring them back. And I will bring them to occupy the land. And that's exactly what you see when you come into the book of Exodus, is that God sees his people in um, in sin. I'm not in sin, in, in bondage. Bondage to um, uh, the Egyptians. And uh, he has compassion upon them. One of the passages ends just with the statement um, that God knew. That God knew. And a lot of the translations like to say, they like to fill that in with uh, that God knew their misery. Like the ESV, it just says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. God knew what these people were experiencing and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. He heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And so what's happening with Moses if you think of God and we think of uh, Moses or we think of the nation, it's become a nation so you became, came from Abraham to the, 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 the patriarchs to uh, the nation of Israel Israel becomes a nation in the land of, of Egypt and so, uh, but then the perspective redemption that God's going to bring of his people out of, out of, out of um, Egypt has as its goal again back to the promised land the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So at every point, man is what he is. He's dust from the ground. He's, um, you know, the, 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 we have, we're made for this world. We're made for the purposes of living out our existence in this world under God's sovereign rule. Um, and that's what resurrection is all about, of course. And of course, Jesus comes to bring us to a new heavens, a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. But every point, there is the promise uh, that this Edenic scene, this scene that's the original scene that got corrupted through sin, God's about the business of restoring it. And he's restoring it now through a nation that will evict these great transgressors and they will be evicted their land will be theirs and then they're going to be populated in this land they've already become a nation of a million and a half people and God said to Abraham is multitudinous as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea and this great multitude that no man can number would be entering into this land of promise and, and just like in, in, in Eden uh, generations would follow generations follow generations and there would be an advance from that land that through this people all the surrounding nations would be blessed all the surrounding nations ultimately would become the people of God that's the vision that's the vision and of course that doesn't happen just as 
Adam did not succeed in his uh, calling. Israel does not succeed in hers as well. And of course the new covenant comes into being because of Israel's failure. And there's a couple of things about the new covenant that I think shed light upon this old covenant that we're about to look at in Exodus. So keep your finger in Exodus 3. And just before we do Exodus passages, I just want to look with you at Jeremiah 31. And just to get a sense of um, what this passage tells us about this Abrahamic, uh, this uh, Sinaitic covenant or this covenant that God makes with the nation um, through, after redeeming them from Egyptian bondage. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, very familiar verses. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's what we're looking at now. Looking at the covenant that God made uh, when he took them by the hand and he led them out of the land of Egypt. And the problem with that covenant is my covenant they broke. And so this covenant that God enters into with the, the nation is a covenant that can be broken. We have to have the categories of keeping covenant and breaking covenant that comes in this covenant. Now, I don't think you have that those categories with respect to the Noahic covenant. There's nothing that you need to do to keep it or no way to break it. God simply promises a continuation of existence um, until the end. And there's really no way to also break the Abrahamic covenant um, it's not a covenant to be kept or broken. God just promises. God promises to Abraham's seed. The land will be theirs. But what happens in Moses is now there's this category of keeping covenant with God, breaking covenant with God. This is something new and additional. And, and I think the reason for this is, is that this whole matter of land now has to do with who possesses the land. So the promise has to do with the land. God promised Abraham Canaan. That's the centerpiece of the promise to Abraham. How shall I know that I will have the land? Well, God puts him to sleep and shows him. <laughs> the reason it's certain he will possess the land. He goes through the pieces and says, Sooner will I cease to exist that this promise will not be kept. But yet the iniquity of the Amorite has not yet been full. They're inhabiting the land. Your descendants won't until a future time. And so the question is, who inhabits the land? Well, there's these Canaanite nations that are there now. There's the land of the Hittite and the Perizzites and the Gegushites and all the other Shites that you read about, and Ites that you read about in Genesis, and they will be evicted. Israel will be placed in. But yet, not yet. Not yet. They're going down to Egypt. They're going to be kept into captivity until this happens here with the iniquity of the Amorites. Well, they're ready to be evicted. And then your, this people, your descendants, Abraham, will then, at that point, be brought into the promised land. And so God redeems them from Egyptian bondage, leads them to Sinai, gives them the law, marches them forward, they come into the land, and they all live happily ever after. No, that didn't happen that way, right? No, a whole generation of redeemed people from Egypt perish in the wilderness. They do not enter into the land. And so this whole matter of keeping and breaking has to do with the question, not of the promise of the land. That's certain and sure. God says the land is going to be Abraham's descendants. But which generation? Which generation? Who enters into the land of promise? Well, it's not going to be the generation of Jacob or Isaac or Joseph or... 
their successors because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full and it's not going to be the first generation that comes out of Egypt because how is it consistent for God to evict these transgressors and bring in these transgressors you see that wouldn't be right would it if, in other words, if the reason these people were evicted is they're worshiping Baal, and God of ba- Baal, and then they're worshiping the Baals in the wilderness themselves, or they're worshiping golden calves, God can't bring them in. If they're not faithful and obedient and following Him, if they're hard of heart and stiff of neck and they're idolaters. So the, the whole question of the, the Sinaitic covenant is the question of who enters the land, on what, on what basis. And there is a basis. And the basis is keeping the covenant and not breaking the covenants. Now we're into the area of breakable, unbreakable covenants. And then there's also a relationship that Jeremiah 31 says. Now I've told you that the covenant at Sinai, the covenant in plains of Moab and Deuteronomy, uh, very, they're very much like uh, the ancient kind of covenants that Super, super kings would make the, the really big kings that would subjugate many many nations and put them under their vassalage they would be under the rule of a great king who's called a suzerain hence they're called suzerain treaties that the nature of the covenant is likened unto that comes in the very form of those ancient treaties that we have um, are the archaeologists have uncovered that existed in the world at the time but, but it's also interesting to see how it says in 32 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah, um, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. Though I was their husband. So the king is their husband. He has a relationship to them of kingship over them, yes, but also a husband to them. So it's not just a relationship of a, of a monarch governing a, a people, but it's a monarch governing a people as a wife, as one who loves them, who one who has an intimate, passionate, jealous regard for them. They are his wife. And hence the whole question of idolatry is really a question of marital unfaithfulness. It's a question of spiritual adultery. And uh, so it takes on greater gravity because they've come into this relationship to God that's one of tremendous uh, intimacy the relationship of a, of a husband to, uh, to, to a wife, a wife to a husband so in a real sense when God says um, I, I redeemed you, brought you on eagle's wings I brought you to myself uh, and now you, uh, will you keep my covenant uh, the real, real question there is will you take this one to be your bride to be your husband will you enter into a marriage with him it's, it's a marital covenant as well as a suzerain covenant that we should envision. Both of those things do come into play. So that's just a little bit of background about what we're getting into when we begin to look at the uh, covenant that God makes with uh, this people that he brings out of Egyptian bondage. But again, we see this continuity with the Abrahamic covenant. God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then, of course, God meets Abraham, um, meets Moses at the burning bush, and uh, he declares to him in verse 6 of chapter 3, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. And, God, and then, then Yahweh said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I guess that's why some people, some translators 
in chapter 2 that God knew their sufferings because in chapter 3 it says he knew their sufferings but chapter 2 just ends that God knew God, God knew God had an intimate concern and, and, and regard and love uh, of his people but he knew their sufferings he knew everything that they were experiencing and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land the land flowing with milk and honey I think that's the first time it's called the land of milk and honey um to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, all these people that are, need to get evicted when the iniquity of the Amorites become full. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them and come and I will send you to Pharaoh and you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. One of the things that's, uh, I think, are very important in chapter 3 is that Moses asked the question of verse 13, what is his name? If the, uh, if the people of Israel, um, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they shall ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And so that, that presupposes there was a, a virtual ignorance of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not even so much as knowing his name. <laughs> so uh, again, these were people who had become uh, not only in the bo- in bondage to Egypt, but uh, perhaps also in bondage to their gods, um, emulating some of the worship practices, which is why it was so easy for them to make a, a golden calf, the kind of thing that e- that would be worshipped in in Egypt, the kind of concepts of of, of their gods is being superimposed upon um, this God who's now come uh, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, say, they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God's reply is, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now this, uh, this word I am is a verb that is, I guess you'd say a state of being verb. It's not a verb of action. It's just the fact that God exists. Uh, it even has a relation to a, a, a word, the Hebrew word that is the word that speaks of breath. And not uh, not uh, not ruach, um, but uh, another word that also speaks of expelling air, breath, and uh, it, it refers to uh, the idea of of life. This is the living God. This is the God who is. This is the God who has existence. This is the God who has breath. And uh, I point that out because when we come to chapter six, when we look at the name Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the four letters, uh, I think that does relate to what we find here is that that name is really built out of this matter of I am, this existing God, this God who has been, this God who has existence, this God who, who is the source of all existence and the source of all life. So now God promises that um, he's going to bring them out and he's going to bring them to the land that he's promised to their fathers and um, he's going to bring them out by bringing his power to be uh, to be unveiled before the eyes of the Egyptians. Now, um, again, there's much material, easily interesting to look through, but I want to get to the major covenant parts where covenant is mentioned in the book of Exodus. And so we're going to move uh, to chapter 6. To chapter 6. Where there was uh, an aborted effort to read to confront Pharaoh, he, he took away the straw, made them make the same uh, quota of bricks without straw, and so their, their bondage and their uh, turmoil had only increased. 
and so uh, Moses returns to the presence of God and Yahweh says to Moses now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh with a strong hand he will send them out with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land God spoke to Moses and said to him I am Yahweh and then he says something interesting I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Certainly chapter 15 of the book of Exodus, uh, that is that revelation of, of Yahweh as God Almighty. Um, but here, uh, El Shaddai would be the uh, translation. A lot of you know the Amy Grant song that became well known amongst evangelicals with that name, El Shaddai. It means God Almighty. Um, but he says, by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them strange. We read about Yahweh all over the book of Genesis. Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God is usually translated. Uh, How does God say, uh, by by my name uh, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them? Um, It's really a question of what it means to know the name, or what it means really to know anything. Again, there's all kinds of degrees of knowledge that the Bible seems to recognize. Um, Paul says, I know in part, but then I will know as I am known. Um, so there may well be the question that by my name, Yahweh, I was not known as now I am about to be known. There is probably the sense that um, the Yahwehism of Yahweh was not placed upon full display because you had promise but you didn't have fulfillment. And there's something bound up in the name Yahweh that seems to speak of the fact that this God who is I am, this God who has existence, is a God whose existence is constant in all generations, that he does not vary. He's the same God. That what he was to Abraham, he is to Moses. What he is to Abraham and Moses, he is throughout all generations. And that is what seems to be bound up in the name Yahweh, or Yahweh. And I have a little bit of an argument with Pastor Nichols about even saying Yahweh, or Yahweh. Because he says to me, and rightly so, we don't know how it was pronounced. That's true. We don't know how it was pronounced. For certain. <laughs> For certain. But I do think there's this way to figure this out in some ma- in, in fashion or form. Then I'm, I'm going to have dinner with uh, lunch with uh, the Nichols. Uh, Jan and I can have uh, lunch with Nichols tomorrow. So I'm going to present this to him as an answer to the question about the correct pronunciation of the name. See, well, he wants me to say YHWH, <laughs> which is the Anglicide, the, 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 in the English language, uh, for the uh, consonants. The four, the four consonants. Um, which is Yod, Hey, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, Hey, Vav, Hey. Okay, that's kind of right. So Yod would be Ya, Ya, be like a, a Y sound. Ha would be the H sound. Ha. The V, the, the Vav would be a, a Vav sound, the. So you have Ya, Ha, the, and Ha. Now, what does ya, ha, va, ha have in common? Now, again, if any of you have any background in uh, speech therapy, 
at all. Well, first of all, in the Hebrew, these are consonants that are called weak, weak consonants. Uh, weak consonants are consonants that don't have strong pronunciations. Like you have, uh, you know that word that a lot of times preachers use, chesed. <laughs> chesed is a word that in Hebrew means covenant love. God is the God of chesed. And uh, that's one of the identifications of God, divine identity and divine attributes that is glorious and wonderful. And the fullness of what chesed means isn't known. But it'd be helpful if evangelical preachers could just say it right. It's not hesed, it's chesed. That's what it is. But you'll find that they always say it wrong. Because those are strong vowels. Um, I mentioned uh, tohu vabohu which is kind of an eerie thing without form and void and darkness is upon the face of the deep and those are words which have very strong vowels to them and the thing about a, a weak vowel is it doesn't have that strength but what you do have in every one of those things are letters when you even say them that is called aspirate aspirate in other words, you have to breathe. You feel breath on your hand when you say yod. Ya, ha, ha. Feel it. Ya, ha, ha. There's breath that goes out. Every one of those words. Now, that is an interesting thing about such a name. Because in the Hebrew language, you simply don't have four-letter names or three-letter roots of verbs, which Hebrew is, three-letter roots of verbs, that are without at least a guttural or a some other than a weak vowel. These are four weak vowels, all aspirants. Breath comes out of it. And again, when we think of the term for breath in the Old Testament, or wind, it's really the same word that's used as the word for spirit. God is spirit. I wonder if the very way this name is given is meant to be revelatory about who this God is. That he is breath. He is spirit. He is not material. He is a God who um, transcends physicality. He's in every place at all times. And he is it's telling us something about his name. And hence, if that's true, when I try to figure out how you would pronounce this, even though we don't actually know it. And the Hebrews don't, Jewish people don't even say this name. It's the unpronounceable name. My thought is it should be pronounced because it should remind us at least of something of the who God is, this eternal spirit, this unchanging being who has life and breath and gives life and breath to all things. It's the only way you can say it that accentuates the aspiration, the breath is Yahweh, Yahweh. I tried it with uh, other vowels, like long vowels. Yay, you know, yay, they, yay, they. You don't get, you, if, you, if you do long vowels, you don't get breath. You don't get breath. Yo, no, you don't get it. Yahweh, you get breath. So I'm opting for Yahweh. <laughs> Again, this is not beyond a shadow of a doubt evidence. This is preponderance of the evidence, I think. But, yeah, I may be wrong, but it, it just seems to me a good uh, way to understand why this name is 
what it is, the kind of letters that are used to form it itself, is revelatory of who this God is. So that's my understanding of it. And the way it's pronounced should accentuate the fact that God is the God who is spirit, the God who has breath and gives life and breath to all things. Okay? And and that's why this name, it's really uh, a form of I am. And I am is also related to that other Hebrew word for breath. So, you know, I could wrap it up in one great big ball and say there has to be some kind of a relationship between these ideas. But anyway, God reveals himself as the I am. And I should go back to, uh, I'm sorry, he reveals himself to as, the, as Yahweh in a way that um, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, his Yahwehism was not known. But going back to I am, that phrase, I am that I am, could be translated, I will be who I will be. It can have reference not just to his present existence, but to the reality that in the future he is unchanging. He is the unchanging God who does not vary. He does not change. And it seems to me this gap of 400 years between Abraham and Moses is the test, in, is the test case. 400 years has God forgotten his promise? No. The promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is still good 400 years later. The iniquity of the Amorite has reached its pinnacle. God comes now to redeem the people whom he promised Abraham he would redeem. To bring them out of Egyptian bondage. God is showing his Yahwehism. He's showing the reality of who he is as the unchanging God whose promises are dependable, can be counted upon. Even though it takes seemingly forever, 400 years to get it fulfilled. That's an awfully long time. But nonetheless, again, God is not a God who dwells in time. He's the eternal God. He is Yahweh. And he will always keep his word. Okay, so let's get back to chapter 6. Again, God says in verse 4, I also established my covenant with them, uh, that is to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who he's, whom he revealed himself to. He establishes covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. So we're back to the land grant or the land promise. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. My covenant stands firm. My covenant stands sure. I promised Abraham and his seed the land would be theirs. Therefore say to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I think that might be the first reference to that um, statement that is often considered to be the the theme of the covenant the the covenant relationship is God engages himself to be a God to his people and that they will be his people I will be a God to you and you will be my people again a God to you in terms of the covenant Lord who uh, rules and and, uh, takes uh, interest as as your sovereign king Um, but also your husband who loves you with a deep, um, zealous, um, intimate regard. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God. 
who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for possession. I am Yahweh. Now, that's a, this, the next great section where covenant is mentioned. Of course, you have then uh, the plagues that come upon the Egyptians. You have the final plague that ultimately leads uh, Pharaoh's telling them, get out of here. They do. They, sca- they, they, they move out, but he has a change of mind. He sends his chariots, his armies after them. God opens up the sea, brings them through on dry land. And then they sing the song of Moses, his horse and a rider has he thrown into the sea. And um, I don't believe we have mention of covenant in that section, but it doesn't renew again until chapter 19. And in chapter 19 is when you come to Mount Sinai. That's the next great event, is Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, I meant to check out exactly how long they were at Sinai. I think it might have been a year. Um, it might have been a year and six months I'm not really sure there are some time elements that are given in, uh, in Leviticus and Numbers um, but it's just in terms of the biblical account you know how long they were at Sinai? from Exodus 19 till anybody know when they, when they, when they leave? in the Bible what, what passage in the Bible has them leaving Sinai? Numbers 10. Numbers 10. So for the rest of the book of Exodus, from chapter 19 to chapter 40, where the book of Exodus ends, through the book of Leviticus, Leviticus takes place when Israel is at Sinai. And then into the book of Numbers, they're still at Sinai. And it's not till chapter 10 they leave. So what happens at Sinai is significant. What happens at Sinai is what makes this nation now to be a nation in covenant with God, is what makes them to be possessors of his covenant law of legislation that comes from Sinai and an audible voice that they hear, um, which is to be played the law, the table, tables, tables, tables of stone that are put in what's called the Ark of the Covenant. This is covenantal law. We have a law that's called the Book of the Covenant that we find is written and given to Moses that regulates and uh, uh, the way in which life in the land is to be carried out. We have uh, the tabernacle that's given to them where the Ark of the Covenant is in that central place in the, in the, in, in, in the, in the tabernacle. Um, so everything that happens here is, is covenant-related. Everything that happens here is how this nation now becomes established as the people of God possessing his covenant, possessing his law, possessing his, his dwelling place, his place of meeting in their midst. Never before in all the world's history did ever God come and dwell right in the center of the camp of the Israelites. And all of the tribes are around his tent. All their tents are around his. He's dwelling in their midst. He's leading them with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud depending on the day or the night Um, and all this begins here at Mount Sinai God's own appearance to them from the mountain and then the glory cloud from the mountain that ultimately comes and and descends um, on the tabernacle of meeting and then leads them out into the place where he had promised um, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their descendants would possess the land once the iniquity of the Amorite had become full. So this is important stuff. And when we get to Sinai, we read again of uh, God's covenant. It says on the third new moon after the people had gone... So three months they're traveling. Three months they're going from place to place. I'm trying to remember how many places it were that they went, but whatever, how many places they went when it says, and they, and they went here, and they went here, and they went here, and they went here. I believe there's an equal number in the book of Numbers until they get to the land of Canaan. And so there's something that happens here with regard to Israel's travel to Sinai, their travel from Sinai to the land of promise when they send in the spies, and they come back with the bad report, and then they don't go into the land. But there's something of a, of a, of a, of a symmetry, there's something of a correspondence uh, where you have uh, temptations about hunger and thirst, all, all are, are on each side of this thing. And so many of these things are very, very similar. They come to Sinai now. And uh, now it's, the, it's a three-month journey from uh, leaving Egypt, crossing the sea, and then making their way through uh, down on the Sinai Peninsula. They don't make a straight line to go to Canaan. They go south in the Sinai Peninsula. Look at the Sinai Peninsula on a map, and you see where they went. They went down south, three-month journey, until they come to Mount Sinai. In the end, that was the place where God met Moses at the burning bush. They camped in the wilderness. They camped before the mountain, we're told in verse 2. Well, Moses went up to God. So God's at the top of the mount. People are at the foot of the mount. God, Moses travels up the, to the top and God called him out of the mountain saying and you're going to see that Moses had to be a very fit man not only to lead the people through the wilderness as he did but also he's going up and down that mountain not how many times, many times to meet with God and then come from the presence of God go down to the people with the word of God the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Again I don't think there's um, there's a statement in Genesis 18 that God knew Abraham and called Abraham that Abraham might teach his children to walk in the ways of the Lord, to be obedient and such. But you don't really have this idea of the keeping of the covenant. It's kind of like the covenant up to this point, God's covenant to Abraham, it's sort of reaffirmed to Isaac and Jacob. He becomes the God of of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's all that God's promised. God's promised. And God's going to fulfill the word of his promise. But now, again, we're dealing with the question of who enters the land. Who enters the land? And again, remember, this is God's land, and it's not to be inhabited by idolaters. It's to be inhabited by those who worship the Lord. Which is why you have this principle of covenant keeping and covenant breaking. Because if the people of Israel do the things that the Canaanites did, as the land vomited them out, it will vomit out these guys also. There's something of the nature of this covenant that God made with the nation. The nation was to be a nation that brought forth the fruits. Of, of righteousness and, and, and faithfulness and truth and are actually a blessing and not a curse to the surrounding nations. 
So if you obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Again, the whole point of this restoration to Edenic bliss is that man made for dominion would be restored to dominion. You will be a kingdom. Not just subject to God the king, but the nation itself will be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of those who have access to the God of heaven and earth. The kingdom that would be comprised uh, by a kingdom of priests who would comprise a holy nation who would be God's marriage partner, his treasured possession. So a husband would view his wife, a treasured possession. He that finds a wife finds a good thing. The price is far beyond ruby. She's a treasured possession. Israel would be a treasured possession. So you see there's this mixing of the metaphors of kingship and, and marriage, um, all bound up in God's relationship to the people, endeavoring to define for us with a little bit greater clarity God's commitment and love um, uh, to this people. Again, it's the love that's driving the covenant. It's the kingdom that defines the nature of the covenant people. They will be a kingdom of priests unto God, obedient before God, loyal to God, holding forth the, the laws of God as an obedient and holy people. And so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before all, them all these words that Yahweh had commanded him. And all the people answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that my people may hear when I speak with you and that you may also believe, believe you forever. And in the thick cloud he comes and he, in the next chapter, speaks the words of the Ten Commandments in the midst of that thick cloud. Man, I walked out of this building last evening at about 7.30 and I looked over to this direction and what did I see? I saw a thick cloud, dark, and it looked threatening. And I, in fact, I, I texted Jan, who's down at the Jersey Shore, and I said, I hope I'm going to get home safely. This does not look good. And I took a picture of it. And I got in my car, and I'm, I'm like, fear and trepidation. And I go past the town park, and all these people are out there playing pickleball. <laughs> I wonder if they ever took the time to look up and see what's about to come. I hope they made it to their cars safely. But I guess when you're itching to get a pickleball reservation, which now you have to sign up well ahead of time because everybody's playing pickleball these days. I hope they got home safely. Anyway, so... Um, it, it must have been threatening. It must have been fearsome to see this thick cloud in which the living God had come uh, to reveal himself. Now Sinai was wrapped up in smoke, we're told in verse 18, because Yahweh descended on it, not only in, in, in a cloud, but in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up. Then he went down to warn the people. They, don't, don't, don't even touch the mountain. Don't, 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 don't come near it. 
And God spoke the words of the Ten Commandments. And these are the words that later on in chapter 34, I'm sorry, earlier on, he gets the first tablets are written with the finger of God. I think that's chapter maybe 24. But in 34, you have the second copy of the Ten Commandments. And the, and the fact that when Moses uh, in 33 received the law written by the very finger of God on those tables of stone, um, later on, the Ten Commandments and the Covenant are pretty much identified with one another. I don't have the references before me, but you'll see it later on. We'll look at it later on. That the Covenant and the Ten Commandments are almost identical. This is God's covenant with His people uh, that they would keep these words. They would keep these laws. Again, because this is the people, this is the covenant that's going to make it uh, uh, settle the question, will they enter the land? And they have to be a people that honor God through obedience to the Ten Commandments. This is His covenant law. And they are called to be in obedience to this covenant law. So he spoke these words. Oh, now I wanted to mention with respect to the writing of them on these tables of stone, when Moses came down into the camp, having heard uh, the voice of the people, uh, you know, give, given over to debauchery as they were doing these pagan rites to this golden calf that they had made, what did he do with the tables of stone? What did he do with them? Broke them. Broke them too. Again, if the Ten Commandments are emblematic of the covenant, and the covenant is summarized in the Ten Commandments, the commitment to be obedient to God is manifested in their adherence to those commandments. The fact that they're breakable, Moses made it very clear. God's breaking His covenant with you as these tables of stone are broken. And it's again only Moses' intercession that... uh, brought forgiveness to them and brought restoration and brought uh, um, a renewal of the covenant promises and we see that happening more than once where the covenant is broken and uh, has to be uh, renewed that's the nature of the covenant relationship Uh, the next place in the book of Exodus where covenant is is mentioned is in uh, chapter 24 where a very strange event occurs. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, those are the sons of Aaron, 70 elders of Israel, those who were chosen when his father-in-law told him he needed others to bear the rule over the nation. And so, you to come up And worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. So again, the people remained at the base of the mount, but yet it's Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders who come up higher to the presence of God, but not to the, not to the top, not to the summit. Only Moses can go near to Yahweh Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules and the people answered with one voice 
all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Again, you just don't know the nature of your own self-deception when you think you're able, when you're really not. You're not at all prepared to do what God said or to live with God in your midst. And this was demonstrated time and again. But yet, uh, I guess the words of eternal optimism, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do, is what they say. Uh, it's interesting, but in 24 uh, 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 of the book of Joshua, Joshua actually turns to a people where they're going to renew the covenant with God. Again, in Shechem there. Shechem has an important place, but in Joshua 24, at the end of the book of Joshua, they're renewing the covenant to Shechem. And uh, they say something similar to this, all the words of the Lord we will do. And uh, uh, Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A lot of people are saying, you, we'll serve the Lord, sure. And, and Joshua turned and says, you cannot serve the Lord. <laughs> I mean, come on, get real. Realize who, who you are. The Lord's a holy God. You've not reckoned with the true nature and true character of the God of Israel. And uh, those were words of, uh, I think I words that we're not saying it's impossible to, to, to follow the Lord. But recognize you need more than just the outward circumcision of the flesh. You need the circumcision of the heart. You need a heart to love God and honor God and serve God. Anyway, so they're coming up uh, nearer to God. And um, an interesting thing occurs in verse 5. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood of these sacrificed animals, put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar, the altar in which these sacrifices took place. And he took the book of the covenant, again, this is the writings that enshrine God's laws, not the, not the tables of stone, that's different, but this is the book of the covenant, this is the more general rules and regulations that governed Israel's life in the, in the land. He read it in the hearing of the people, largely things perhaps in Genesis, in Exodus uh, 21 to 24, some, many of those commandments uh, later on. There's other commandments probably also incorporated into this thing called the Book of the Covenant. He read it in the hearing of the people. They said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that... Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. And again, this is the first time we read of anything like this occurring, where covenants are made in the midst of sacrifices and midst of blood that's being taken and being thrown on people, thrown on books, and something that's called the blood of the covenant. That leads uh, theologians like a fellow by the name of O. Palmer Robertson. Some of you might know that name. Uh, he defines a covenant as an oath sworn uh, uh, bond that God makes with blood. And he thinks blood's essential to the making of a covenant. So someone like that would say, oh, I, I won't get into the, the implications of that, but um, I'm not certain that's right. It may be right. But I'm not certain that it's right that there are covenants that don't seem to have this element of blood. But it may well be that because you're going to have the tabernacle that God's now going to give to them, 
and you're going to have the blood sacrifices that are going to be made and the whole matter of the Day of Atonement being the day that the, that the, the blood is taken into the presence of God. It's sprinkled on all the furniture of the temple uh, for the purposes of cleansing the, the temple, the very place of God's dwelling in the midst of his people. And maybe because now we're getting to the place where God's coming to dwell in the midst of the people like he does with the covenant, with the, with the tabernacle, that this matter of the cleansing of human defilement, of human sin, uh, that defiles uh, um, everything, that everything that it touches, I mean priests even going into the holy place, it, it had to be atoned for. Not just the sins of the people atoned for, the very tent itself had to be made pure. You read the uh, Day of Atonement rituals and you see that. Is there had to be atonement made for the very house of God. For God to dwell there. For God to dwell in their midst. But it is a significant understanding of the blood of the covenant because it's the very language that Jesus takes up at the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting, what we're going to see here is that there's a meal that's going to be engaged in with God and these people. You see, Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, in verse 9, 70, the elders, they saw the God of Israel. This, again, God's in their midst. God's coming near in ways unprecedented to, to his people. Coming near to the priests, coming near to the elders, coming near to the people. Um, he did not lay his hand on the chief of the men of the people. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. They ate and they drank. There was a meal they engaged in in the very presence of God. And in the conjunction with the covenant meal, we have the language of the blood of the covenant. You think that was in Jesus' mind when he says, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That this meal that he's engaging in with his people it has the nature of a covenant meal to go and save then when he took the wine. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. The blood of the new covenant. Again, it points out the need for atonement. It points out the need that the blood is applied to everything that comes between God and man that establishes this covenant relationship this friendship this union that God enters into with his people and so at least at this point uh, this covenant blood becomes important the shedding of blood without which there is no remission of sin of course in the book of Hebrews this very thing is mentioned where Moses sprinkling blood everywhere um, I believe it's chapter 9 of Hebrews and with this we're going to have to end there's more to the story but we're not going to get to it all this morning verse 18 therefore not even the first covenant and again first covenant in Hebrews is the covenant in made at Sinai it's not the Abrahamic covenant. It's not Noahic covenant. It's not the Davidic covenant. It's the covenant that was made at Sinai. When every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, verse 19 of chapter 9, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself, 
book of the covenant and all the people saying this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you and in the same way he sprinkled with blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship that hadn't been built yet but it was to be built and later on that would be done as well indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins and so as you're encountering the whole question of this, of, of this covenant relationship that God enters into, which is basically promissory, but now it's getting to the nitty-gritty of a God who draws near. And the whole question is on what basis do people approach him? That's where the blood comes in. The atoning blood must come in because there must be purification. And it's through the, through the, through the, the life that's in the blood there is a relationship of life that God establishes with his people. And we'll say more about it, God willing, next week. We've run out of time this morning, but I hope this is at least thought. These are some thoughts that you can mull over in the coming week, and when we get together, God willing, next Lord's Day, we'll pursue these matters further. Let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. It's filled with just matters that are, are greatly compelling, that they, they call us to give thought and to give heed to what you've made known and how you've made it known. For Lord, you you call your people into a relationship to yourself that's a glorious relationship where you're a, a husband to them and you're a king reigning and ruling over them. And we're thankful, Lord, we can be part of that relationship, that we can be a people subject to you, that we can be a people that bow the knee of love and loyalty and allegiance to your throne rights and your sovereignty over us in the fullness of the knowledge that you have engaged yourself to us as, 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 a, as a husband, uh, as a bridegroom, taking a bride. And we're thankful for the intimacy of your love and the intensity of that love. And we're thankful that that love is the driving force of all that you do to bring us to yourself. And we're thankful that that love has provided the blood of atonement. We're thankful that that blood has been provided in the blood of Christ, the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that we might be able to draw near with confidence and with joy. We ask you, Lord, to bless these things we've discussed this morning. Help us to ponder them. Give us deeper and fuller, clearer understanding as to the meaning of these things, as to their relationship to gospel truth and gospel reality. And we pray, Lord, we would be a people that are continually growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask you to hear our prayers as we ask these things in his name.